0: Well, good morning, and welcome to Genesis Church. My name is Paul Mumon. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, you know, again, special uh, thanks and uh, well, uh, well done to all the uh, fathers uh, in the room with us today. If you've got a Bible with you, I want to invite you to take it and turn to Acts chapter uh, 17 in the New Testament. And uh, as you're turning there, have you ever uh, have you ever been um, experienced something? Uh, maybe something so awesome. Uh, But yet you were disappointed in trying to describe or explain it uh, to someone else, maybe someone else that wasn't able uh, to experience it with you. Maybe like uh, you saw a great movie or something, and so after seeing that movie, you're with uh, some of your friends, and you want to tell them about the movie, or you're trying to describe it, or maybe you don't want to give it away, and well, because they haven't seen it yet, you know, your encouragement to them is, okay, you just got to see it, all right, so that that maybe we can talk about it, maybe we can understand this uh, together. Maybe it was uh, the challenge of trying to describe a great game uh, that you were a part of. We uh, had a great baseball game a few weeks back. Our team, my boys are on the same team, and uh, my wife and daughter had stayed home. It was a late game on a a school night, and we were down by, what, four or five runs uh, in the last inning, and we put up a nine spot in the last inning. Took the lead, big victory over the first place team. My boys and I, we rushed home, uh, rushed into the house, and you know, just the challenge of trying to describe everything that went into all of the emotions of that that great victory uh, as a team. I remember uh, a little over a year ago, we went to uh, Yosemite uh, as a family on vacation. And again, trying to describe something that if you've never seen it before, you know, it's just difficult to get your minds around. The, The sequoias would be an example of that. If you've ever seen the sequoias before, you know the challenge, you know, in trying to describe something like that to someone else. There's my son, Joel. I'm raising a tree hugger uh but uh you know, again, something so marvelous, magnificent. How do you begin to describe something like the sequoia trees? Or, or how about this? If you've been to Haiti before, if you've gone on one of our trips to Haiti, you know, if you've done something like that, you know the challenge and the difficulty in trying to come back and describe that experience uh, to your friends and to your family and to your church. And so what do you end up saying? It's like, you got to go. All right, just, just go on the next trip. And sure enough, if you go, then you get it. You're kind of a part of a community of people that get it. They understand what it is that you've been trying to describe. We're starting a new series today. It's gonna take us uh, through the summer, a series that we're calling The Father Is. And over the next eight weeks, what we're gonna do, what we're gonna attempt to do is to look at eight of many uh, different attributes of God. Now, an attribute of God is just something that is true of God, all right? Let me say that again. An attribute is something that is true about God, and our hope is that better understanding these important truths and attributes are gonna help us. Uh, gonna help you grow and deepen uh, your relationship uh, with our Father, with our Father in heaven. I gotta tell you up front that uh, any sort of a study about God, especially these attributes of God, is a pretty serious undertaking. I mean, how in the world do you begin to describe something so awesome, so great, someone like our God? Well, one thing that's important to note at the very beginning of all of this is that God is our only reliable source of who he is. Like, we have to look to God. We have to see what he has said about himself. We have to look to him for such knowledge. I mean, we can only know what we know about God because of what he's revealed to us, all right, about himself. And so for that, we have to look to Scripture. We've got to look to our Bibles. And with that in mind, I think there are at least two general conclusions that we can make about God from Scripture. The first one is this, if you're taking notes. The first thing is that God is incomprehensible, all right? On this grand scale uh, God is incomprehensible. It's kind of like trying to comprehend the universe or trying to comprehend eternity or something like that. The same is true with God. I mean, no matter how smart we may think we are, we will never fully grasp who he is. It's impossible to know everything about our God. David said it like this in Psalm uh, 145, verse 3. He says, "'Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom.'" And in, in Psalm uh, 139 verse 6, David again, thinking about uh, the works of God's hands, his marvelous work in creation, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And so we would say that God is incomprehensible. We cannot fully grasp who he is. The second thing is, though, that God is knowable. That while he is incomprehensible, he is knowable. While we can't know everything about him, he can be known. He, he wants to be known He created us, he created you so that we might love him, that we might live for him, that we might uh, know him. He's like this deep well with a bottom that'll never be reached, all right, never fully be reached. There's always something to learn about God. There's always something more to discover about our father and Jesus is our best example for that. He is our best example when it comes to knowing God because he was totally dependent on God for everything, for all things. And what Jesus did for us is he modeled what it was like to have an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. It was Jesus that said in John chapter 17, verse 3, he says, now this is eternal life, that they know you. Uh, it was Jesus' way of saying that, hey, hey here's the key to it all. All right, the key to eternal life is knowing you, a personal, intimate relationship with God, the Father. He says, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so for us, not only did Jesus set for us an example for how to better know God, but we're also reminded that he made it possible too that it was God's gift of his son that made it possible, that provided access for you and me to know God and so that we might have an intimate relationship with him. And so we can conclude that we can't know and comprehend everything about God, but he can be known. He can be known and wants to be known. And why is this so important for us? Well I like what famous pastor and writer A.W. Tozer said about knowing God. He writes this he says what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I right, now wrestle with that a little bit and that's a pretty bold claim. I mean, why is the way that we see God the most important thing about us? Well, think about it. Think about it. I mean, the way you see God is gonna influence everything about your life. Uh, it's gonna influence the way you live. It's gonna influence the way you see the world. It's gonna influence uh, the way you view the people in your life, the way you view your time and uh, the way you view your possessions. I mean, the way you see God is gonna affect your emotions. It's gonna affect your outlook. Even right now, especially right now in these frightening times that we're living in, it's also going to impact the decisions you make. It's gonna impact the direction you take with your life and the way that you view things like sin. There are great great advantages to knowing God for who he is. And as followers of Jesus... You know, we know, we realize the more we know God, the greater hope that he's gonna provide for us. Uh, The more you know God, the greater confidence you're gonna have in your life, the greater security that you're going to experience in this life. Knowing God in a deeper way is gonna uh, increase your passion for him. It's gonna increase your desire to serve him and to live for him. The more we know God, the greater contentment we're going to experience in this life, contentment that can only be found in knowing God alone. And so that's what we're after. Uh, That's our goal, that's the challenge of these next eight weeks together as we look at these uh, eight different attributes of God. Again, an attribute of God is just something that is true about him. And I wanna say this too up front, that the goal in a series like this, and anything for that matter, when we talk about things like these, the goal isn't just knowledge, all right? The goal isn't just how much we can learn and tuck it away as knowledge. No, the goal, and especially for this series, is that we will know him better, and that through a series like this, and not only our time here, but in your personal study, and your reflection, and your time of prayer, the goal is that we will know him better and that we will fall more deeply in love with our Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul said it like this in his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter one, verse 17, he said, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. This was a prayer that the Apostle Paul was praying for these people, for these Christians in a church like Ephesus. And I think it's a prayer that is relevant for us too. I think it's a prayer that we can pray as well, that we will know him better. And so that's what I'm praying for this series. That's what I'm praying for me and praying for you. And I'd like to pause and just take a moment before I continue and do that right now. Can we pray together? Father in heaven, we do thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for how it inspires us and directs us. Uh, we thank you, Father, for uh, the promise that as we, as we study you and as we learn more about you, as we put these things to practice, as we spend time with you, this promise that we can know you better, that through your Holy Spirit who gives ris- wisdom and revelation that we may know you better in deeper and greater ways. Father, will you accomplish that work in us starting today and all summer long through this series, I pray that when we get to the end of it, we would be able to say, we know our Father in deeper and greater ways and that will change our lives and our church for the good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so eight attributes over the next eight weeks. I wanna let you know that we're gonna have some different teachers uh, throughout the course of this series, and uh, we're gonna be moving around a little bit, and so this message that I'm preaching here today, I'm gonna to go preach it at our Carmel campus next weekend. Steve's gonna come here, and he's gonna preach on the goodness of God next week. He's preaching that, in this morning uh, in Carmel. So we wanna make you aware of those changes and switches uh, so that you don't get caught in the same place or a uh, second place and hear the same message twice, unless you want to, but uh, again, today we wanna to look at an attribute of God that we're gonna call his self-sufficiency, if you're taking notes. And to say that God is self-sufficient, I wanna give you a definition. Uh, To say that God is self-sufficient is to say this, that God is totally and absolutely complete within himself. right, that he is totally and absolutely complete within himself. Ever meet someone uh, that seems to have everything, everything you could ever want or need? I'm so thankful that I've got a great neighbor in Jeff who has every tool that I could ever want to use, need, borrow. He knows how to use every single one of them. He's happy to lend them. He's very sufficient uh, when it comes to his tools. On a grander scale, God's sufficiency means that all that makes him who he is already resides within himself that he needs nothing, uh, that he is dependent on nothing, that he is absolutely complete within himself. Let me look at just a few verses with you that speak to our God, our Father, and his self-sufficiency. Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, the words of Moses, he said, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Or over in Job chapter 41, verse 11, God says, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Look what God says of himself. Everything under heaven belongs to me. Or in Psalm chapter 50, verse 10, again, these words of our father. Look what he says of himself. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all that is in it And then Jesus over in John chapter 5, verse 26, says this of his Father. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, he's pointing out that God has life, all right, that he is the giver of life, that he's the creator of life. It says, So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He is our sufficient God. Our Father, he is sufficient. He lacks nothing, he craves nothing. Everything there is and that has ever been has been created by him. Our self-sufficient God needs nothing. And yet he created us. And he created you. And he created me. And why is that? Why would a self-sufficient God create someone like you and me? Look at these promises again from scripture. John chapter three, verse 16. Why did God create us? Verse 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Psalm chapter 86, verse 15. Again, why did God create us? The writer here says, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and a gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Over in Zephaniah chapter three, verse 17, look what he says. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And then Peter in First Peter chapter five, verse six and seven. Again, just describing this God of ours. Why in the world would our self-sufficient God create someone like you and me? He says, humble yourselves, therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The self-sufficient God of ours, he needs nothing, but in love he created us and he cares for us and he loves to provide for us. He loves us. He loves you. He is a God of love. I want to look at Acts 17 with you uh, for a few minutes uh, here this morning. And I want to look at one other example where this self sufficiency of God really comes up and uh, is presented well through the words of the Apostle Paul. Now, uh, the book of Acts is a history book. uh, If you're new to this, Uh, it describes the early days of the church after the resurrection of Jesus uh, and his ascension into heaven. And the Apostle Paul is one of the main figures uh, here in the book of Acts. Now, Paul was a church planter, he was a missionary, he was a disciple maker. And by the time we reach Acts chapter 17, he's on what has been referred to as his second missionary journey, a trip that has taken him to the uh, ancient city of Athens uh, in in Greece. And so I wanna pick it up with you in Acts chapter 17, uh, beginning in verse 16. And I'll just show you what I'm getting at uh, as he describes the self-sufficiency of God. Beginning in verse 16, it says, while Paul was waiting for them, and he, he, who, who is he waiting for? Well, he's waiting for Silas, he's waiting for, for Timothy. These were two others that were joining him on this missionary journey. Look what it says. He was waiting for them in Athens and he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, I've never been to Athens, all right? And maybe some of you have been there, but I've seen pictures. And if you've been there, or if you've seen pictures too, you know this city is full of great art. Uh, it's full of great architecture. At least that's what we call it today. But 2,000 years ago, it wasn't just great architecture, but more importantly, it's what we would call idolatry uh, today. Athens was full of temples. It was full of shrines dedicated to false gods and goddesses like the one the city is named for, the goddess Athena. And so Paul, a follower of Jesus, comes into this city, and the scriptures say Luke records that he was greatly distressed, uh, that he was overwhelmed by what he was seeing. Now, I don't know if distress describes how you feel about our world today, I think that could be a fair word for how I feel at times, and I'm not distressed, not only because of the violence and the division and the hate that we see so often in our country today, but also because all of the examples of what people are giving their lives to, uh, giving themselves to anything and everything, but God, the fact is that our country is no different than ancient Athens, Uh, and right now we are surrounded, we are overwhelmed by idols. Now, What's an idol? Well, I like to say that an idol is anything, just anything at all that is more important to you than God. Uh, It's anything that you allow to become first and foremost a priority over you uh, in your relationship with the Lord. It's anything that catches your heart. It's anything that affects your emotions, anything that influences your life, anything other than God. Uh, Tim Keller explains it this way. I like his definition. He says, an idol is anything so important to you that if you were to lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living anymore. And so we may point to things like temples and shrines as an examples of idolatry in ancient Athens, but idols, well, they take on all shapes and forms today. I mean, you can make an idol of your family, Uh, You can make an idol out of your children. You can make an idol out of your children's sports. You can make an idol out of career. You can make an idol out of money or social standing. You can make an idol out of romantic relationships or your sexual identity. And an idol is anything that we feel we must have. Uh, An idol is anything that we allow to take the place of God as the most important thing in life. And so for the apostle Paul, he was just overwhelmed by this and concerned by this. So look at verse 17. It says, so he reasoned. Uh, which is just another word for debated, or at least was very intentional in his conversations, the people that he was coming up against. Like in the, as Luke continues here, in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, uh, he also went into the marketplace, all right? Day by day with those who happened to be there, uh, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate him. Now, Luke is the historian here. He's the one that's copying all of these words down. And as he writes about this account of Paul, he notes that there were two groups, at least two groups of people were present uh, in the marketplace. There were the Epicureans, all right, and the Epicureans just simply believe that the purpose of life is pleasure and happiness at all costs. Know anybody like that today? All right, and then at the same time, there were the Stoics. Now, a Stoic is someone who believes in the potential of a greater purpose, but but that we have the capacity really to make it on our own, that we are sufficient in and of of ourselves. We don't really need anything else, and so as Luke continues, some of them ask, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remark, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so Paul wasn't afraid to talk to them about his faith, no matter what they said about him. I just want you to see that he was intentional uh, in doing this. I mean, it was something that was very natural for him. It was something that was very important to Paul to talk about the resurrected Christ. And so I'd say that his primary purpose and passion was to share his story. It was to share his faith with Jesus in, in Jesus Christ with everyone that he come and came in contact with. Man, I, I hope we have that same urgency. You know, I, I want to have that same sort of urgency in my life, especially in these times, to share my faith uh, in Jesus. With others. Verse 19, it says, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now, situated on a hill near the Acropolis or the center of town, the Areopagus probably overlooked the city. And here's a, a picture where many believe the Areopagus. Uh, stood uh, on this particular day. And uh, the Areopagus was just simply a meeting place. Uh, It was a meeting place where uh, the most prominent thinkers and philosophers of the day would would come together. And it was from here, it was from the Areopagus that they talk about all the latest thoughts and uh, all of the latest philosophies. And they talk about things like religion, and education, and the purpose of life. And so Paul was invited to this distinguished meeting place where the members asked him. Let's pick it up again in verse 19. They asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, verse 20. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. And you get a little footnote here that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to these latest ideas. Verse 22, then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this an inscription to an unknown God. So you are are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Now, I want you to notice a few things here. I want you to notice, first of all, the respect that Paul extends to these men. He's not trying to insult them in any way, all right, but rather trying to establish some common ground with them from which he can share. I think that's important for us to take note of. Uh, I think we need to take note that our arrogance, our disrespect, I think our sarcasm Uh, Things like insensitive Facebook posts aren't gonna win anybody to Christ, all right? It's not gonna happen. It's not going to accomplish uh, good. And so notice, first of all, Paul's respect For these men. And from there, Paul, he recognizes that they've got this altar there, this altar present that just simply with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, again, these were very polytheistic people, believed in many gods, always searching for the latest thought. And so some believe they kind of kept this altar uh, for the God that they were maybe overlooking, the one that they hadn't yet heard of. And so for Paul, he looks at this altar and he thinks that's a perfect entry point, right? I mean, can you just see it in him? I mean, Paul's going to, Use this as an entry point. I think that's an important note too, that as you're out cultivating relationships with people, whether it be your neighbor, whether it be somebody that you're working with, maybe even just someone in your, your own family, man, look for entry points like these. Uh, look for the questions that can come up. Pray about you know, God opening doors, providing opportunities for you to share your faith. Uh, to share the hope that you have. I mean, it was the apostle Peter that said that we should always be prepared to share the the hope that we have, you know, to share this this with others. And so for Paul, he's ready. He's ready to share truth about our God. And for the sake of our attribute today, I want you to look now at these following verses here and look carefully and observe as he describes the self-sufficiency of God. Verse 24, he says this, Paul says to these people, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that we would, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And then he says in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Who is this self-sufficient God of ours? Paul says he's the creator. He's the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of both heaven and earth. He goes on that this is our awesome God that like, unlike these gods of Athens, as these people of the Areopagus are looking out on the city as Paul is speaking here, Paul describes one that cannot be contained in any building or any temple or in any shrine, no building built by human hands. He points out that this is our sovereign God, that he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, that he is the giver of life. He's the one that gives life. And breath to everything that from one man he made everyone, and for each person that has ever been, that he has marked out our appointed times in all of history. And what is, what is he up to in all of this? I mean, why did he create us? What does this mean for you and me? Well, again, look at Paul's words in verse twenty-seven. He invites us to seek him, and to reach out to him, and define him, so that we can know him. I just ask you today: Do you know God? of a relationship with our Father? Are you growing in that relationship with him? Do you know that's his desire for you and your life right now and for every one of us that we would know him, that we would have a relationship with God? And then this, this clarity from Paul in verse 28 that is for in him, in God, that we live and move and have our being, that our purpose and satisfaction will only be found in our relationship with the Father. Um. Our family uh, got out of here back five, six weeks ago, went out to lunch after church and maybe like what you plan to do today. And we ended up at Qdoba, right? Great, great place to to get lunch on, on any Sunday afternoon. And uh, we walked in and I, I'll just tell you it was packed. I mean, lying all the way almost to the door and uh, but we had a coupon, all right? We were getting something free, so we weren't about to walk away. And uh, so we walked in, and as we were walking in, man, we noticed there was a family from um, our boys' baseball team. And uh, so we were talking to them, and as we got inside, I think there were probably five or six different families from Genesis that were all at Qdoba. And then I, we saw some people from the kids' schools, and so I'm just kind of working the place, if I'm honest. You know, walking over, talking, shaking hands, smiling. My wife had already found her place in line. And so I finally scooted into line a few minutes later, and this guy that was standing next to my wife turned to me, and he said, what, are you running for mayor or something? Like, and, uh, and I, you know, I kind of laughed at him a little bit, and I said, well, you know, I'm hungry, so I'm excited now to just kind of be in line here. I said, no, I'm, I'm a pastor. I said, I, I pastored a church here in Noblesville. And so I just said to him, I said, how about you? Do you, do you attend a church here in Noblesville? And he looked at me, and he says, no, I think it's all a bunch of crap. And uh, so... I was like, "Well, are you getting the fajita burrito or the tacos?" And, uh, but uh, so you know, even in strong words like that, I will honestly say he we we kind of had a respectful conversation from that point forward. But I just kind of asked him. I said, "Well, just tell me a little bit about that." And he said, "I just I don't see any good from it. I've seen nothing but problems and heartaches and." all over history. And, and I said, well, wh- what about Jesus? Though, where does Jesus fit in that in your perspective? And he said, well, I think Jesus is just probably kind of like the David Blaine of that day. And uh, I said, really? I said, you know, that, that's kind of interesting. I said, how in the world 2,000 years later, are we still talking about him? Because I said, we're not going to be talking about David Blaine in 50 years. We're still talking about Jesus. Like, where, where does that come from? And well, I don't know. I, I don't know. And I said, well, let me ask you this. I said, what 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 about people and what they're living for today? I mean, don't you look around and just see people searching for greater meaning and purpose? And he's like, Yeah, you know, I get that a little bit. And I said, Well, yeah. I mean, you think about it. I mean, people look, maybe they're looking for their purpose in their career. Maybe they go looking for their purpose in a relationship. Maybe they go looking for purpose in money or sports or sex or in all these things. And don't you don't you just find over and over that that people realize that it, it just stuff doesn't deliver? Yeah, you know, I get that a little bit. And. I said, where does that come from, though? And he goes, well, you know, I, I think I'd say that every one of us, I think we have a soul. And I said, well, where does that come from, though? I mean, has that just happened by, by accident? And I, I was sharing with him, I shared Ecclesiastes 311, which talks about how, how he has placed eternity in the hearts of all people, that I, I believe our God has placed in every single one of us a desire for something more. That, like, there's gotta be an answer. There's gotta be a greater purpose worth living for. And he, he kind of agreed to that. And again, we, it was a short Conversation and it frustrating, you know I knew I wasn't going to change his mind in a few minutes and and kind of wish you know maybe we'd have an opportunity to cultivate a relationship, but it was kind of a reminder for me that for every person, you know, every person, we're all looking for meaning and purpose. He kind of acknowledged that, you know, I'm looking for meaning and for purpose in this life and coming up short. Rodney Stark in his book, The Triumph of Faith, argues that everyone in the world is looking uh, for purpose, is still very open to spirituality, including things like tr- traditional Christianity. He writes this, he says, the world is more religious than it has ever been. Around the globe, four out of five people claim to belong in, to an organized faith, and many of the rest say they attend worship services. In, in Latin American uh, Pentecostal Protestant churches have converted tens of millions, and Catholics are going to mass in unprecedented numbers. There are more going, uh, church-going Christians in sub-Saharan Africa than anywhere else on earth. All right, and China may soon become home of the most Christians in the world. Meanwhile, although not growing as rapidly as Christianity, Islam enjoys fire, far higher levels of member commitment that it has for many centuries, and the same is true for Hinduism. In fact, of all the great world religions, only Buddhism may not be growing. Furthermore, in every nook and cranny left by organized faiths, all manner of unconventional, unchurched supernaturalisms are booming. There are more occult healers than medical doctors in Russia. Uh, 38% of the French believe in astrology. 35% of the Swiss agree that some fortune tellers really can foresee the future. And nearly everyone in Japan is careful uh, to have a new car blessed by a Shinto priest. See, built in each of us is a desire for something greater, that there's gotta be an answer to all of this. There has to be purpose. There is a search in all of us for greater understanding. And for these Athenians at the Areopagus, Paul's answer for them was, it's God. It's the God of heaven, this unknown God that you've been looking for. He's our father in heaven. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. And the same is true for you and me today. The same is true that it's only in God that we live and move and have our being. And how do you reason that when it comes to a self-sufficient God, this self-sufficient God of ours that needs nothing? He needs no support. He doesn't need our help. The fact of the matter is he doesn't need our nation. He doesn't doesn't need us to understand him. He's not obligated to account for himself in any way. This self-sufficient God of ours, it just means that he's more than capable of finding joy in himself. He's fulfilled in being himself. He's completely satisfied in himself. He's not lonely. God is completely sufficient in and of himself. He has everything he needs. And at the very same time, the great mystery of the all-sufficient one is this. But the God who doesn't need anything at all, he created you and he created me and he created you so that you could bring him glory. He created you and me so that we could join him in this work of healing and restoration in this world. The all-sufficient God, he created us so that we could love him and be loved by him. He created us so that he could provide for us. The self-sufficient God of ours, this father of ours is a provider He's a giver and he loves to give and provide for his children. I love these words. Dave shared them from our stage just a a little moment ago. But uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse nine, the apostle Paul here is writing from his own experience. And he says, hey, here's what the Lord said to me. The self-sufficient father says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. See, the self-sufficient one has everything that you need which means that he is more than sufficient for you. And for some of you today, I just say that he's exactly what's missing from your life right now. I mean, like the people at the Areopagus, for some of you here this morning, you've been looking for anything and everything to fill the void, uh, to answer the questions, to meet the needs of, of despair in your life. And the answer for you today is in these same words of the Apostle Paul. We read them in a moment ago for in him, it's in the Father that we live and move and have our being. See, our world is nothing without God. Um, Our country is nothing without God, and you and I are nothing without him. He is what we need. We need his power. We need his love. We need his strength. God is more than sufficient for us. And what he says to the Apostle Paul, he says to you and me today, And I pray that this will be encouragement for you right now in your life. He says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. You know, these words were important words for me. uh, Last weekend. Uh, A little over a week ago, I had the chance to run a kind of a crazy, insane sort of a race with uh, Steve Wallen, our Carmel Campus pastor, and eight other guys. We ran a race called the Ragnar. Uh, It was a 200-mile race from Madison, Wisconsin to downtown Chicago. And uh, so you start in Madison, Wisconsin on Friday morning. We started at 9.30. Again, there's nine of us, so you break the race up 36 stages, four stages apiece, and uh, it was a thrill, uh, it was a challenge, it was a little crazy, a little insane. The temps were unbelievable, 95 degrees plus—and. Uh, but I ran four stages I ran one at three in the afternoon one at one o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning at 8 a.m along uh, Lake Michigan and then we finally finished uh, on Saturday afternoon and uh, a little beat a little exhausted but but for me uh, I made second Corinthians 12:9 kind of my verse for the race and uh, man I just remember running along some of those uh, hot afternoons and just praying those words your grace is sufficient for me your power is made perfect in my weakness and I am really weak week uh, right now, Lord, and uh, man, it was fun to have that experience, but most importantly to, to have that time with him. But I got to tell you that those words were not only encouragement for me in a race, but they've also continued to be encouragement for me, even again this week. And just this reminder that his grace is sufficient for me in my fear and my anxiety, that his grace is sufficient for me in my worries, his grace is sufficient for me in all of my questions. And the same is true for you today. Again, no matter what you're going through right now, his grace is sufficient for you. And that means that if you find yourself in a place of fear right now, I want you to know today that the Father is sufficient. Uh, If you're in a place of worry right now, the Father is sufficient. If you find yourself overwhelmed by anxiety here this morning, the Father is sufficient. He is sufficient for us. And, And as Paul goes on to say, his power is perfect in our weakness. And that's fascinating to me that somehow Our weakness, as what Paul is saying, places us in an ideal situation to experience the power and the presence of God in our lives, maybe like we've never experienced before. And so, again, if you find yourself in a place of weakness today, maybe for you right now, it's in your marriage. I want you to be encouraged today in knowing that the Father is sufficient for what you need. Uh, If you're in a place of hurt, the Father is sufficient in what you need. In your pain, he's sufficient. In your financial worries and strain right now, he is sufficient. As you're struggling and looking for answers, looking for purpose, he's sufficient. As you think about the future, what it may hold for you or for your kids or even for our country right now, he is more than sufficient and he is more than sufficient to deal with our sin. He's done that for us in Jesus Christ. And because he loves us, his greatest act of love for us was in sending his son Jesus to die for us. The all-sufficient one has provided everything we need. The Father is loving and he is sufficient for you. And I I want us to remember that today as we celebrate communion. In just a moment, I'm going to ask our host team to come forward and they're going to pass these trays and you're going to find a cup and actually it's two cups, so take both of those. There's a juice in the top and the crackers there on the bottom, but If you know Christ, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we wanna invite you to share in communion with us today. It's a reminder that God gave a son. The Father has given us the perfect gift. He's demonstrated his love for us in giving his son Jesus. And so we remember Christ as we take the bread. We remember Christ as we take the juice. And I wanna challenge you with this. Before you take communion, or maybe you're not gonna take communion today, but you're just gonna reflect on some of this. I want to ask you is the father sufficient for you and where do you need his help right now in your life would you pray and ask him to help you because he loves you and he loves to provide and he loves to be that sufficient provider for us so i'm gonna invite our host team to come forward right now and you can take these elements the band's gonna play they'll lead us in one final song here in just a moment but what is it that you need from him today You just pray and ask him to do that work in you as you remember the gift of Jesus that he's given to us.